You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. will be surrounded by billions of connected devices, also autonomous cars, autonomous drones. How can we ensure that they treat us uh, yeah, with respect or they treat us in a very fair way? Hi, I'm Marek Pawłowski, and that was Kirsten Eichmann, responsible for innovation at Energy in Berlin, my guest on the show today. Now, Energy is a pretty interesting organization. It's been spun out of one of Germany's biggest and oldest energy companies and is looking at investing and accelerating a whole bunch of different experiences, digital experiences, which I think could have quite a significant role to play in shaping the future of the way we use digital devices of all kinds. So I'm going to come back and tell you a little bit more about Kirsten and how she came around to being a guest on the show uh, in a moment. But first of all, I guess, uh, welcome back. Um, we've been absent for a little while, but now back with a new season of the Mex podcast. Uh, and I've got some interesting guests lined up over the next little while. Uh, and of course, don't forget, there's the whole archive uh, of the 50 other episodes that we've done so far. So if you enjoy this one and you're a listener for the first time, do go back and check out some of the other interesting people that I've had a chance to chat to over the last couple of years. So a couple of updates for you on what's been going on within the MEX community. First of all, dinners. So our Mex Dining Club has been going from strength to strength. We've had a whole bunch of them over the last uh, few months in London. Um, these happen roughly every sort of six weeks to two months or so. Uh, it's an informal evening, no presentations, certainly no pitches, just a group of people who share an interest in experience-led design getting together, uh, and we will suggest a discussion theme for each evening, which sometimes we get around to talking about a lot, sometimes we get around to talking about not so much, but uh, always there's a, a discussion theme and a few ideas to, to get the conversation going. Uh, and we've got another one coming up um, in January. That's going to be on the 17th of January in London. Um, the guest list for that one actually is full already. Um, there is a, a waiting list though, so if you're interested in uh, getting an invitation in case any of those places free up, do let me know. Just drop me an email and I'll be happy to send you the details for that. Uh, and then we have a subsequent one already scheduled for the 26th of March. So again, if you're interested in coming along to that one or any future ones, just give me a shout and I can make sure you get sent invitations to those in the future. Uh, this one on the 17th of January, the discussion theme has actually been suggested by one of the existing dining club members, um, Dr. Caitlin McDonald, who's been along to plenty of these, these dining club evenings. And she's proposed this theme looking at the way the digital tools that we use interact with the kind of physical spaces 
that we work in. Uh, so it's very much looking at that crossover point where the things that you're doing in the physical environment and the things that you're doing in the digital world start to have an influence on each other. So I think that's going to lead to some very interesting conversations. Uh, and we'll try to share a little bit of the inspiration around that and also any of the findings that come out of the discussion at the dinner through the various MEX channels like this podcast and the journal, our, our social feeds as well. But anyway, let's get back to Kirsten, and I'll tell you a bit more about how this interview came around. Uh, it was one of several, actually, where I was introduced by Ramona Liberoff, uh, who some of you remember, uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, was a guest way back, probably about 18 months ago now. And that made for a very interesting discussion episode, if you want to go back and have a listen to that one. But she introduced me to Kirsten, and Kirsten's career is it's kind of fascinating, really, the journey she's been on. So she spent time with Fidor Bank uh, in Germany, which was really a pioneer of some of the things that we now come to accept as being standard features of the new generation of banks and financial services companies, which is emerging. And she went on to become head of user experience there and did some pretty interesting things with the way Fidor was building a community that would help to inform the way in which they developed the products and services that they offered. Uh, she went on to become head of technical evangelism at Microsoft uh, in Germany, uh, and most recently has been working with Energy, where she was the head of the machine economy lighthouse, as they describe it, which is this uh, group within Energy, that the German energy company, that was trying to identify uh, all of the different startups and technologies which may have an influence on this intersection between things like mobility, energy usage, and the digital experiences that are going to be central to users' lives in the future. Since we recorded this interview, and you'll get a sense when you listen to it that this is something which we actually recorded uh, back in the summer, she's gone on to become managing director of uh, energy innovation, and her remit has expanded slightly uh, across um, all of that area. But we get to talking about some of that and get on to looking at really some of the techniques, some of the strategies which are going to inform the way in which we shape this relationship between humans and the emerging generation of new machines, be they giant industrial machines, be they small sensors, be they autonomous vehicles, you have this whole new set of experiences which are a rather different challenge to design for uh, than the kind of things that historically user experience designers have been tasked with where you have that one-to-one -one relationship directly with the user mediated through a screen of some kind. It's an exciting new area. It's an exciting new world. Uh, and it was great to have a chance to speak with someone um, of Kirsten's background, who's obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Uh, I'll be back at the end. Uh, but for now, here's my interview with Kirsten Eichmann. Hope you enjoy. Kirsten, Welcome to the MEX podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me on what, at least in the UK, is a, a very hot and sweltering Friday afternoon where we're recording this. Whereabouts in the world are you dialing in from today? I'm dialing in from, from Berlin. Uh, and I can tell you that it's also uh, a kind of a melting pot right now here. It's so incredible hot, uh, but 
yeah, still I can enjoy that. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here on the show. And I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about something which is quite close to your current role. So you work around the area of the machine economy. And I'm curious, both myself and I suppose for the listeners, um, some of whom might not be as familiar with this area as well, what kind of machines are we talking about here in your role? A machine basically uh, can be uh, can be uh, a solar plant, it can be an autonomous car, or it can even be a toaster. Uh, so every time that uh, you see an IoT device which is becoming smart or smarter, then in this yeah in this context, um, those. IoT devices become relevant for the so-called machine economy I'm talking about in my in my area. Does it make sense? It does. It, yeah. And it's, I guess, quite a broad definition here of, of what we mean by machines. Uh, I think for some people, perhaps machine has that connotation, uh, at least in English, of uh, quite large industrial machines. But from the way you describe it, you know, we could be talking about anything from a very small sensor right through to something at the scale of an industrial plant. Exactly, exactly. Also, to give you an example, if you take, for example, a charging pole and and a car, between those two machine-to-machine devices, in the future, we could think of having an autonomous interaction as soon as the charging pole receives its own unique identity, and so does also the car, those two entities can communicate, can talk to each other, and can also what I uh, always call, they can do business among each other. So this is how the machine economy is also uh, is also phrased. It's a combination of uh, new identity solutions, new settlement solutions, and um, the this. I think this identity piece is one of the most uh, relevant um, aspects. Otherwise, if even uh, if, if an IoT device has no has no unique uh, identity, then it's the same with us human beings, and it's very it's very hard for this thing to yeah to make its presence known to another device or to a human being. Okay, well, this is where it starts to get really interesting. I think, particularly from <laughs> the kind of perspective that uh, people within the MEX community will be familiar with around the role of design thinking and a user centered approach in these things. Because what you describe there, I guess, is once you start to give a relationship, uh, um, an identity to these machines, then they can start to mediate those relationships to a degree between themselves, which is something very new. You know, we talk about the machine economy yeah. here. I think we are talking about something which is is novel. The idea that these machines, rather than having to rely every time on a human in some way to filter their relationship with the world and their relationship with other entities, they now have the potential to do that for themselves. And I'm really fascinated by exactly. what sort of challenges that starts to, to throw up for the people who are in the business of, of designing and creating these things. And this is a very interesting point, as uh, I could also assume that the term user experience, if we apply that to machines, we can also think about new patterns, new instruments, like an API could be the communication gateway between uh, machines. So how are, how can we improve the machine experience? This could be done, for example, by, uh, by an API system. 
uh, how can we improve that a machine is able to collect the, the best rated goods or services or the best, the best prices. Here we could apply algorithms, for example. So I think also that maybe not now directly, that, but that user experience patterns which right now only are focused on the human beings, might change over time also with regards to the entire new IoT economy. Could you imagine a situation in which some of these machines that are operating in this new style of economy have a set of user experience patterns which are geared both towards their relationships with other machines and their relationships with the humans that are in some way connected to them, either as owners or, or as users of those machines, and that those two sets of characteristics end up being a, a set of sure. quite separate definitions, if you like. Sure. Um, for example, you could think of, um, of a 3D printer that by the combination of an API set, a blockchain layer, and some algorithms would be able to find the best, how do you call that, commodities or, or materials to be, to be in a position to produce the, the, best, the best product. You could also think of having a smart contract logic in place inside the trusted execution environment of the printer that the IT the device itself can control which cut files are going to be decrypted and then used by 3D printer to produce something without, as you said some minutes ago, without any human being be involved. So we could think of a complete, entirely autonomous uh, um, organization, a system where the 3D printer is talking to uh, a database um, to get the files um, where the entire process of encryption and decryption of files is going to happen in the CD printer itself. And then when the product is ready, the product itself would receive, let's say, something like, like a digital identity, which sits somewhere also on a, on a cloud system. And as soon as the physical product um, is received by the customer, really, at the door, then the, that information that the customer has received the product and that the payment process has been done, uh, this entire lifetime journey of the product, the printer, uh, and the cut file, this, this entire circle could be, could be stored on, uh, on a blockchain logic, for example, to, make, to, to, to showcase how those autonomous systems using also cryptocurrencies uh, could evolve over time. Another example could be, uh, let's assume we have a pool of, let's have, a, we could, uh, could assume we have a pool of, of autonomous cars that continuously talk to each other to exchange data, for example, regarding where can I find a cheap uh, energy to charge my car, or they could even exchange some data regarding the weather or some geological, uh, or with regards to some geo data points, and that we could assume that a pool of autonomous cars, they, they use the same data pool or they use the same data marketplace to optimize their routes. Uh, also, maybe to exchange their their data with regards to how much energy they have spent itself 
to even distribute those data within the pool. So think of a new economical business model that if the car uh, sells its own uh, data points to another car, he could also think of new, 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 incomes, new income streams at the end. It's very science fiction, I know, but uh, those are the, at least this is the vision we are working on at my team. And we invest in so-called decentralized uh, technologies where we think that uh, by using those uh, technologies, we can shape and we can foster the, this vision of uh, a new economy. Tell me a little bit more about your team and how it relates to the company that you're working in. Why are these things important to a company like energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I should start explaining a little bit the role of uh, the innovation hub itself. As energy, energy, energy SE is um, is one of the biggest utility companies in in Europe. It's the ecological daughter or the first spin out from RWE, which is a very very old energy company. And then we have the innovation hub where I'm part of. I'm part of the innovation hub, and here we try to, uh, to we try to identify um, mega trends that are not only energy focused but very holistic mega trends where we see that the future will look like completely different. And with regards to machine economy, what we can already observe today that one of the most critical infrastructures we have in Europe, it's, it's the energy grid. And if we, if we don't find other technologies how to make our energy grid more secure, uh, it, it, it can be easily, uh, and then it can easily be hacked. And here, comes, um, and here comes a very interesting point. We think that energy and mobility, those two, those two aspects are, are linked to each other. If you think of the future of mobility, then we think, uh, then we talk about e-mobility, electric vehicles, charging poles, and aspects like like that. And one goal from my investment cluster team is that we also want to make the infrastructure being more secure, that the future of mobility or that cars uh, are able to to use uh, to use uh, the grid or to use charging bowl without having any security risks at all. So we think about the future of the infrastructure of an energy company. We think about um, how uh, the future of energy will look, how energy, the energy market in the future will look like. We also can notice that maybe there is no need in the future any longer to use a utility company because Maybe not that in the UK that more and more people have their own solar plants on their roof. They have their electric vehicles. Maybe they also have a charging pole. So they will be They will have their own autonomous energy um, plant. Basically, they will become uh, independent from a centralized utility company like Energy and RWE. And this is something which we already can see that maybe nobody needs us any longer in the future. And that's why we have to think of, about new new uh, business models, new, new services. And also we have to think about if nobody needs an energy company any longer because you have your own house, house which is uh, self-sustainable with regards to energy, what then could be the role of a utility company of the future? And with those 
in, in, in the innovation hub, we have four different lighthouse or R&D clusters where we try to invest in early stage startups where each lighthouse or each focus area has its own narrative, its own vision, how those startups have an impact on on the energy on the on the energy future like the convergence of mobility energy big data um, the role of uh, prop tech and smart homes in the future and my team and i we are representing the so-called blockchain-based machine economy where it's uh It's me being responsible for the strategy and there's also to other to other people, they are really screening the startups that might be relevant for us. I have also two investment managers in my team who, who are dealing with the commercial due diligence and, and the, yeah, let's say the, really the, the venture capital aspects. Um, and this is something which every lighthouse has in common. A strategy lead, and then uh, two or two or four very ex uh, very inspiring people who are really doing the groundwork and talk to the startups and figure out if they match to our vision, uh, and then we normally invest. It all sounds like, as you say, really quite future-facing, uh, almost science fiction stuff to be in a position at a company which can take that quite long-term view of where such a critical piece of infrastructure might go and to be able to, to work with startups, to be able to work in an innovative sort of environment to be able to support that. But I'm wondering, you know, if that's important to a company like Energy, why was it important to you as an individual to go into a role like that? I mean, you've spent time in the world of financial services. You've worked for big software companies like Microsoft in the past. What made you feel that this was the right time for you personally to go and work on something related to, to energy and, and infrastructure? Maybe because it's, it's not only infrastructure and energy related. In my current role, I really have the freedom to focus on the decentralization of our economy and I'm not I'm not forced to look only into energy related uh, startups and this is maybe to give, give, uh, give you a little bit more framing when I started to look into um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies this was this uh, happened during the financial crisis in 2011 when I was really shocked about um, how how our money system uh, works and that only a small group of people basically they are have the power to control nearly everything and that was the the starting point for me that i was really trying to understand more about this new emerging technology and this was really in, uh, in comparison right now it was eight years ago and i was trying to following that path working at, at Fiderbank back then, working at Microsoft. And then I realized, I think in 2015, 2016, strange energy company called Adobe. And I, I, could I could understand that they started to look into this, this topic area when nobody else was ready yet. Now it's a buzzword. Everyone talks about Bitcoin and everyone wants to invest in cryptocurrencies. But, the, but back then, this was really, it was really um, seldom the case that a big industry player was taking this new, um, this new techn technology serious because they understood that 
the, the, there's a correlation between Bitcoin, which is a currency that is backed by energy and an energy company that you need a lot of energy to um, to uh, come to uh, uh, to have enough hashing power to uh, solve the puzzles. And that was really the point when I started to observe this company. I was trying to watch every YouTube video they they had produced in that space. And when I got the chance to to build up this new focus area, which is about a new uh, designer's grid system, which is about uh, the tokenization of solar plants, um, then I was wow! This is this is uh, this gives me the great chance to to have some impact, and I hope that with um, doing the right investments, that we also can build uh, build a better future where not only privileged people have access to energy, money, uh, new income streams, but uh, each of us. That principle of decentralization and how that seems to underpin so many of these possible future advances is something which really captures the, the imagination. And I wonder you know, whether in the work that you've done so far, you've had a chance to reflect on how that might affect the way companies or, or individuals go about thinking about the, the product creation process in the future of the various different services which are going to sit on top of this more decentralized infrastructure. If we look at what's been happening, for instance, within you know, companies that work, say, in our MEX community, you know, we've seen a big trend towards uh, larger organizations really investing in building up their design teams and building up their product design expertise uh, and trying to do that in quite a centralized sort of a, a top-down way to want to have that as like a core key capability within the company itself. But from some of the things that you're describing and some of the things which may be enabled by this decentralized infrastructure in the future and the way in which things like blockchain can, can underpin that, we may actually be having to prepare for a rather different environment and a rather different way of going about creating these these products, these services in the future, where you have to have a design approach which reflects that more decentralized sort of layout to, to the economy. You know, have you had an opportunity yet to see any of that in action or to think about you know what that might mean for the way uh, companies go about creating in the future? What I have seen so far far is that with regards to developers there is that famous community um, the github community where developers where each where freelancers developers from different countries can join can join uh, a project and they can work on 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 a feature they can they can work on on an application and here i i realized that they also would like to to use a blockchain that based on the code based on the feature that a developer has created the money flows directly from from the from the code he has produced to the wallet of the developer so no there won't be a, a typical um, contract between a human being and the company any longer but the code itself uh, based on the quality rating of the peers then can decide how much money the developer will earn by um, by by contributing to the entire new software he is building together with other software engineers. So this is, I think, the main interesting point that 
the, the normal way how we think about employment contracts between people and companies might be disrupted over time that that middle part, middleman part will go, go away because the, the contract itself between a person and the, the work he is doing will be, uh, will, be, uh, will be settled autonomously. So instead of fighting for your share options when you're joining a startup, you just get on with creating the product and it's all digitally linked through the blockchain to what contribution you've made and the money flows in from that. You don't need to wait for your share options to vest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, or, or it, would be, it would be amazing if I could observe being an investor if i could go to the github platform if i could see okay my money the money i i invested in that uh, startup is used is used to build this or that feature simply by observing how much has been built on the software itself so or that um, as soon as a certain software milestone will be reached that then um, the, 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 the people that are working on this piece get some dividends, get some dividends as an incentive and simply that this entire process, as you said, vesting, getting dividends, being incentivized could be triggered by certain, uh, by certain um, conditions that are uh, that are embedded in the smart contact in the code code itself. You've had a chance to see startups in action for yourself, working with a, a startup in the area of, of banking for some time as the, the head of user experience there. And I'm curious as to, you know, this feature that you're describing and the kind of possibilities that may be enabled with some of these new technologies that you're working on, how much that differs from the time that you spent uh, when you were working within that startup and how it related to that role that you had as, as head of user experience? If I compare the work I'm doing right now and the, the work I, I was um, uh, I was opposed, supposed to do at FIDO, the vision was also back then very similar to what I'm doing right now. As to give you a little bit of context, because I started to work for that company during the financial crisis when uh, the bank decided that there is really a high need to develop new products and really to re-establish lost confidence in banking and that we, it was our vision and our mandate to build new customer-focused services. And that's why I also think that FIDA was one of the most innovative banks right now because they understood that the, the, the banking product that, that, we, that we have been facing until 2009 and 10, they have been very old-fashioned and, bank, and um, banking-centric. But our vision was that... Um, we wanted to create a product where the person itself is in a position to improve his financial literacy. So we tried to establish a community application where people have been allowed to exchange their experiences with regards to money, uh, stock, stocks, uh, credit, saving bonds and even cryptocurrencies to have a counter, to have an alternative in place with regards to normal banks. Because as you may have, um, if you may, as you may have made the same experience in our society, no one talks, no one talks about money in a very open, open way because it's not, uh, it's not very popular to talk uh, in which, uh, in which stocks you have 
invested or so. But we 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 thought the opposite should be the case that we should have um, a marketplace or we should have communicate a community where people have the free freedom also to ask stupid questions about banking products to increase their financial education. In particular, after the financial crisis, when a lot of people saw that those banker, bankers um, the, that are, have been employed by Goldman and Sachs, that they only wanted to make money by themselves and that they didn't want to produce products that fit the needs uh, that fit the need of their their customers how much of this work was driven by a sort of push from the bank if you like to encourage people to adopt these new behaviors versus a pull from the customers that it was something that you saw as a latent demand within the market and, and responded to you know when you were working trying to understand what it was the customers wanted you know were you finding that you were having to to convince them of these possibilities or was this something that you learned from the customers themselves and and, and then responded to with with offerings of your own at the beginning when we started when we started establishing the bank it was not that easy to find people who were willing to talk about their investments but using also here a community approach we went to meetups um, we did a road tour across Germany we really tried to find the the first the early adopters and at the end once that we once that we said okay normally you have always seen the bank being the the enemy Yeah, you don't want to talk to your banker. It's always a little bit frustrating and annoying. We are the ones we want to provide an, an open uh, space for you. Please come and join our community. And then uh, we started having a small group of people, maybe 100, and they started to have those conversations about money really day and night, like like a small nerd group uh, who have been, people who, which have been really interested to learn more about the system. And then over time, and we have been using also Facebook and uh, and. LinkedIn and Twitter. We used Twitter as our communication channel. Then we ended up, so when I left the company, we had over 300,000 people who, who were using the community to uh, be, have a, be better informed uh, about the, the products they could, could buy. What do you think motivated people to want to be involved in that? I mean, as you say, it was an interesting time because of what had happened during the banking crisis and there was possibly a feeling of antipathy towards the banking industry as a whole and yet here you've got a community of several hundred thousand people who are not just Mm. using the products but it sounds like they were also active contributors in that product development process and they felt like they were a part of it why why did they do that I think it's very easy because in that case they could they had an impact on the the price itself. So two things in general: using if you are more informed about products, then you also can do more informed buying decisions. Uh, and the second part, which is a little bit more topic specific, in that community uh, forum, we had also a dedicated group where they the people the users could talk with the CEO itself. With, with the person who was really leading the bank about the development of the interest rates. So they had some tough discussions. Of course, everything was done virtually uh, using a, a, a chat function, but they they have been discussing with the, the banking director what could be the, the interest rate of the, the of the 
of the saving account, for example, or the, the the financial account, and I think that this was a good. At this moment, they had a good feeling because they understood that someone was that the CEO was listening to them, not this typical social media buzzword bingo. Yeah, we are using Facebook because we want to get in touch with our people. In that community, it was really um, the DNA of uh, of the of peer-to-peer -peer banking that they could um, speak about speak with the CEO about the strategy of the bank itself. For example, they were talking to us. Yeah, we would like to have. Uh, we would also like to have uh, a credit card. Could uh, could you talk to your developer team? Might this be possible in the future to have a credit card? Because you have to think, this bank was very small back then. Now it's now it's big. We had only a wallet with very basic functions and then over time also in uh, relation also in correspondence to the feedback we received from our users through the community we have been able to build our product pipeline this was a very interesting case i think that we had over 300,000 co-workers that were working uh, with us together on on our Product uh, product portfolio. It sounds like a really enviable relationship with the, the customers, and as you say, uh, to make that work, it needs to go beyond it being just a, a buzzword or a marketing piece. It needs to be something which is really innate to the company. But not all companies manage to achieve that. A lot of companies pay lip service to the idea of we're going to involve our community. But uh, it sounds like it, it really was something that was fundamental to the way that, that the bank worked. I mean, having had the experiences you have of working now in several different large organizations, where do you think that comes from when it succeeds? You know, is that something which has got to come from the CEO? Is it something which uh, can come from having a dedicated team like yours, the user experience team within the company? Like, how do you actually make that stick mm -hmm. within an organization? It has to be realized top down. So at least you should have a sponsor who is in favor of, of your vision. In the case of Bank, it was really the CEO of the bank, a former typical banker who got who after the financial crisis understood by himself that things have to change. So he inspired us to inspire the others. So it was very easy. We followed, simply followed his path. But of, but of course, at the end, you also need to hire people who can understand the, the philosophy or the vision. And this, that it needs a lot of time to work on that piece. Maybe it sounds a bit too science fiction. Maybe it's easy to make money with such an approach. But at the end, because you ask me, it's always good to have a, yeah, to have to have an advocate in your company uh, who gives you, who is able to give you the freedom uh, to explore, uh, for example, those new areas. And it, uh, for me, I'm again in a very happy uh, situation that my, yeah, that my boss is uh, is supporting me, and that um, I'm I'm able to uh, explore, for example, also uh, token investments with regards 
uh, to energy. So we might be the first European big country, a big sorry, <laughs> big uh, big company who who is able to uh, to process uh, token investments from an accounting point of view, tax point of view, legal point of view. Because he said, key, if you are convinced that this piece will become very important for the future, check this out, talk to every uh, department, get the feedback, and then uh, present the results. And if it sounds uh, sober and, uh, and uh, logical, then uh, please, please move ahead. Well, I guess it goes to show how fundamental some of these changes which you're looking at for the future could be to the way companies operate the very fact that to be able to be in a position to process some of those uh, kinds of token investments you need to obviously change things in the accounting function you need to be able to talk to all of these different stakeholders within the company it it probably reflects on the significance of what a difference that would make to the company as a whole to be in a position to make a move like that yeah, absolutely. As this as cryptocurrencies really are a complete new asset group, people people from the accounting team they really have to figure out from a very intellectual point of view how to deal with those new assets. What can you write in your books about the fair value, for example? If, for example, I own some tokens in a company, then we also have to face a different tax situation. As soon as I decide to uh, liquidize, to, money, to, to sell my tokens away, uh, then also my legal dip, uh, my tax department has to be informed and uh, they, have to, they have to pay uh, the capital gains in the crypto space, which you can imagine <laughs> that it's, it's for a big uh, corporate like, like energy. I really appreciate that the people have been so open that they supported me in doing that journey, right? Really, really impressive. So I have to ask, Kirsten, going back into the mists of time, I know you yeah. studied literature and fine arts at university. When you were studying, did you imagine that you would end up in the kind of roles that you have, which now, I suppose, have this quite uh, technical, quite engineering sort of focus to them? Never. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had no clue about uh about technical stuff back then. But, uh, you know, reading is, is the API to gain knowledge. So maybe my, my study in the literature field was helping me uh, that I do love reading so much. And this is also uh, a technical tool, reading. It's the, it, it can be used between our brain and the outside world simply to, to gain muscles on also new topics like finance, like coding, like technologies, like cryptocurrencies. And uh, knowledge is free right now. You can use the internet, you can read everything. You are not uh, convinced to spend only time on Facebook. Uh, you can also use internet, the internet to uh, as your own uh, fitness studio uh, to, to become smarter. And that, this might be the, the, the linking point between back then what I did and what I'm doing right now. Well, one of the things that I've learned from having now 
50 or so of these conversations with different interview guests on the podcast is that often the people who end up going on to do the most interesting work in fields of software and and design are the ones who have the most diverse backgrounds when you look back into their past and they've come from fields you know I've had people who have come from a theater studies background people from anthropology backgrounds and yet they go on to do things where by synthesizing those different subject areas that they studied in the past with new things that they've learned it perhaps gives a, a broader perspective, you know, something which if you've come purely through the engineering route, maybe is, is more difficult unless you have the, the personality traits towards that. Um, I mean, was there a moment at which you felt you were making a, a transition during that, that career? Uh, I know, you know, you spent time in marketing, but then mm-hmm. ended up focusing more on the user experience side of things. Did that feel like a conscious transition at the time? When I started to realize that most of the most of the work is done by by the IT team, this was this was the case at FIDO where we were sitting really close to each other. Um, I, I got so much I got so much fascinated about their work, the, the work of the IT guys, that I started to learn coding simply that I was able to talk to them, that we could use the same language. I didn't want to feel stupid because uh, before I started programming, I, I couldn't understand what the guys were, were saying to me. And then I realized that it's um, this what I think the starting point was I wanted to speak the same language at, at, at least a little bit. For example, I'm also not fluent in English, but I can understand you. I, I can understand what you mean. And the same was for, 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 for IT. So um, I wanted to communicate with them and then to do some programming sessions. This was helpful for me. And th- I think this was a very, this was a fundamental uh, change in my life. Then I really wanted to understand more and more about also algorithms and how a text stack uh, looks like and then how a text stack of the future could like, look like. Uh, so going into tech, learning also some fundamentals about uh, programming itself. Then I, this was a moment in time when I became a nerd. <laughs> well, I think, uh, as you say, the ability to master or at least get a working knowledge of the vocabularies of other areas is going to be one of those critical skills of the future for people who want to be in roles that have a significant impact because it seems like so many of the the challenges which could have a significant impact on people's lives in the future are ones which are going to require cross-industry, cross-discipline collaboration. So if you get good at being able to quickly master new vocabularies, then that's probably a pretty good underpinning skill um, for life in general. It makes me want to to go back and uh, try and improve on my schoolboy German so that we could have this conversation again in a couple of years and I'd uh, be able to at least try a few words of German without feeling too embarrassed about it. Sehr gerne, but maybe in the future you you can also talk... uh... Uh, you can talk in English to me and I can talk in German to you and uh, uh, maybe then we can we can understand each other easily by by using new 
new technologies as well. This would be this would be great. Well, it goes yeah. back to you know some of these ideas about the the machine economy and uh, you know some of yeah. these smart technologies which could sit in between us. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I know this is you know the, the big focus for you at the moment. And I was reading the essay that you published on Medium uh, a little while ago about the inclusive machine economy, and there was this phrase that you used within that which really caught my attention, where you were talking talking about the need for a digital Hippocratic Oath. Could you explain a little bit what you meant by that? The starting point was that if you assume that um, in three or five years we will be surrounded by, by billions of connected devices, also autonomous cars, autonomous drones, how can we ensure that they treat us uh, treat us, yeah, with respect or they treat us uh, in a very fair way? Then, uh, which brought me the, to the idea that we have to think about new incentive schemes that good inclusive behavior of an autonomous car facing a wheelchair user, for example, will be incentivized. And this has been clustered then by the concept of the of a digital Hippocratic Oath, which which um, I think developers and AI engineers have to put a lot of energy in. So, which also relate, relates to deep deep learning and machine machine learning, how can we foster, how can we foster a good behavior of, uh, of uh, AIs, um, IoT devices, and uh, uh, those new digital technical beings that we, we have to live together in the future. And um, then I, I understood that maybe we can use, we can combine the IoT world blockchain and the crypto world because here it's again about incentivization if uh, if you think again of, about the bitcoin uh, cryptocurrency here the system only works because a lot of people who don't know each other are, are incentivized to uh, authorize uh, uh, transactions they receive a bitcoin as incentive and those incentive schemes which foster a common goal for example to have a new currency to have, uh, uh, to have um, a better planet, to provide the energy transition, this could be, um, this could be realized by that entire new cryptocurrency space. But going back to the machine economy, yeah, this is, I, I think that's, it's, it's a mind, it's like a mind game. What if, um, what if an autonomous car would get cheaper energy uh, in exchange for uh, for for being inclusive and for not only preferring sorry for that framing white male rich managers who uh, pay more for the right but also older people uh, people with uh, walking impediments. So would it be correct to think of this as? A, a safety mechanism, something that if machines go down the most technically efficient path, they may end up developing characteristics which are not palatable to the, the ethical values that we have as a society. Or, or is it better to think of it as a set of, of characteristics that we sort of try to actively imbue within everything that machines do within their kind of their fundamental characteristics you know is it a is it a a, a final shield against a, a sort of doomsday scenario in which machines end up doing things counter to to our interests or, or is it something a bit deeper than that that it that we should try to to embed these behaviors right through from the early stage no but you um 
it's exactly how you how you uh, described it that if we only think about if efficiency and automation then of course um, the, the the future the future of our planet will maybe look like not always in favor of us as, as human beings but if you already start now when it comes to deep learning where also I mean deep, deep learning is based also on good and bad decisions so a machine an algorithm learns learns very very quickly what about what 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 which which uh, decision leads which decision is right what what leads to the next step and here uh, I would like to avoid that it's not only focused on efficiency but also that the as we people we are so diverse old people fit people young people that we have to think right now about those concepts and here I really would like to call make a call for the AI engineers out there that they should think about those curation systems, right? Um, and new incentive schemes that it's, as you said, Adrienne, that it's not only about efficiency, that, but that uh, human, uh, machines also become a little bit uh, more human. And when you're working with startups uh, and trying to identify the ones that you, know, you might want to partner with or, or invest in the future, are those characteristics that you're now actively looking for within those startup organizations to see an awareness among the founding team of those kind of issues, uh, of the ideas of being able to, to build in these kind of ethical uh, systems, this, this way of thinking into the products? Yeah, for example, there is one, uh, there is one startup um, called Big Chain DB. Two things. Their, their, their objective is uh, to build um, an open an open marketplace for data where, for example, you can uh, sell your own data sets um, to an AI company. Uh, so it's really a diverse free marketplace for data. But uh, but I was but uh, but what I was one but what I wanted to highlight is that they their team is also very inclusive, free. They they have uh, they have more women in their tech team. They have also transgender people working for them. So they they fulfill the, their vision is really uh, to not having only uh, centralized players uh, who uh, sell our data like Facebook and Amazon, but they their aim is to build a new protocol for data which can be used by each party. And the same vision is also reflected in their own team. Yeah, it's very diverse. It's, yeah, it really represents uh, uh, the new generation that is coming. And of course, this is, was for me a clear sign that I, I, I wanted to invest in them. It's, I mean, it's not always the case, of course, but this is really a lighthouse company. It's a role model how uh, also future companies uh, should look like. Kirsten, I'm conscious we're coming to the, the end of our time on the show. And one of the things which... I always like to ask people who have taken the, the time to come on the podcast is about the future. And particularly in your case, you know, you've had a pretty diverse career and journey so far. Uh, but when you think forward, say, five or 10 years into the future, is there anything that you haven't yet had a chance to work on, which you're really hoping you'll get the opportunity to do? I would like to work a little bit more more deep in the really in the AI space I would really like to understand a little bit better how um, how you can build an algorithm and how you can improve algorithms 
I think if I'm able to understand this piece also a little bit better, it might be an important building block for for my own for my own profile, for my own view uh, towards the world. Yeah, algorithms seem destined to govern a lot of life in the future so it would seem a pretty safe bet to be one of the people who <laughs> understands how to create them or uh, at least how to understand them yeah i would like to know my future boss <laughs> <laughs> exactly well kirsten um thank you for taking time out on this very hot and sweltering friday afternoon to come and record the show with me it's been a real pleasure to learn more about the work that you're doing uh, and do please stay in touch with us in the mex community it'd be great to have this conversation again in a little while and catch up on uh, where things have gone for you wonderful thanks for having me Mark. it was a pleasure from my side I feel like we managed to cover a huge amount of ground there in that conversation with Kirsten. And perhaps in some ways that reflects something which is going on within the wider world of experienced designers and people who have come through that route, which I'm sure is familiar to many of you listening to this, of getting an understanding of what it means to really think about the role of technology in users' lives and then apply that to the process of product design in all of the various different guises that takes. In going through a journey like that, Kirsten has seen this from a number of different sides. She saw it with Fidor, the financial services company in Germany, and now as the role of digital technology has become more and more embedded in the lives of users, she's gone on to work with an energy company that's trying to think about the next generation of that and how that sort of fabric of society, of the different services that we are going to need access to, is going to be informed by the nuances of these various different digital experiences. You know, I think this is something which is going to be more and more familiar, more and more common story for people who are in this line of work to go through a similar journey like that. So uh, thanks to Ramona Liberoff for the introduction uh, and uh, getting me into the conversation with Kirsten because I found it a fascinating discussion and one I was really pleased to have. Now, if you are also interested in getting more involved in the MEX community, there are a bunch of different ways to do it. First and foremost, this podcast. Almost all of the people that have come on the show over the 50 or so episodes we've done so far have come through personal introduction. So if you know someone who you think is doing interesting work in this area and you'd love to hear them on the show, just drop me an email and let's get the conversation going. You can find my contact details and also links to everything that we talked about in this show and the various things going on within the MEX community up on mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Uh, Of course, there are also the dinners, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Next one of those is on the 17th of January in London, and then we have another on the 26th of March again in London. So if you're interested in becoming involved in those, then do just drop me a line and I can make sure you get invitations to those in the future. A whole bunch of new episodes coming in this latest season of the MEX podcast. So do stay tuned to your podcast player and look out for those coming over the next little while. And if you've got any feedback 
uh, or you'd like to give the show a rating or a recommendation, do please uh, do that on your various different podcast channels. It all helps to spread the word about the show, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, And similarly, that role of personal introduction is really the key thing which spreads the word about this kind of stuff. So if you can think of someone who'd like to have a listen to the show, do just point them to mobileuserexperience.com and the podcast section, and it would be great to get more people involved in the discussion. That's it for now. I'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.